Well, I was asked on the front end to assure you that whatever he's going to do with this further schooling, it has nothing to do with him leaving you. The guarantee on the front end that none of us can make is that God's going to keep him here regardless. On the one hand, I really pray that that will be true because I think what's going to happen as he engages with Lipscomb University in the next uh, couple of years in a graduate program will be to the glory of God and to the benefit of Thomasville and the Cornerstone Church in particular. And that's the exciting piece of this uh, for us. We were blessed uh, back in February to have Jason on our campus for a few days for a preaching workshop. Uh, we got acquainted a little bit, began to talk about the kinds of things that we're interested in doing now with our graduate programming and the kinds of things he's interested in in terms of continuing his education and in working with his church. And it seemed like a great match. And so then he uh, offered me the chance to come down and just tell you a little bit more about what we're trying to do that's different than what we have to confess we have been doing. Uh, in my lifetime, which is now longer than I care to confess, um, although there are various things in my sermon that are going to give it away, I'm afraid, um, I, I've been in, in the ministry business now for about 40 years. And uh, I know I, I don't look that old. Either that or I started when I was five, right? No, that's not true either. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a baby boomer through and through. Uh, but one of the things that I have witnessed as I have spent my life trying to live in the cross-section of academy and church is that over time, the academy, our schools have done a poorer and poorer job of actually effectively training people for real-life ministry. We've done a great job of getting people in classrooms and training them in very specific things with regard to the Bible, with regard to theology, with regard to languages, with regard to things that we call ministry like preaching, but then people would go out and none of that seemed to connect with their real life ministry in churches or with their capacity to stay in ministry for the long term. I think if you look not just in our, our fellowship, but across the board at the life of people who go get trained for ministry and then don't stay in ministry, it's about 90% that don't stay. And I think that has everything to do with a false kind of training that we have created, where the learning in the classroom isn't, isn't connecting with life, with real people in real life circumstances. So we've changed our paradigm. Uh, we have engaged in the last year in our Master of Divinity program, which is the longest master's program that's typically for people that want to go into ministry because it's the most general and the most encompassing of our graduate programs. We've tried to change the paradigm and say, rather than you coming to us, let us plant you in a church setting and let us bring the education in an integrated way into that setting so that what you're doing is integrating with real life ministry all the time. And so that's what we've invited Jason to do with us is come in uh, the courses he takes will be online with a cohort so that he, he, uh, he has a community of students that he goes all the way through this program with. Uh, he will be on our campus for a one-week residency before it starts, which is a spiritual formation retreat, which will both uh, get him acquainted with the other students, but it will also set the tone of spiritual formation and spiritual deepening, which we think is the, the heart of everything we do with our education process. We want ministers trained in this program to be deeply formed spiritually for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the community that they're in. 
and then he'll come back, and while living in your midst, the courses that he receives in text and theology and ministry all will be integrated into your life here so that the things that he's doing aren't disconnected from you, but they're firmly connected with you, and they are not just for his own personal growth, but therefore the development of the kingdom of God and the glory of God and the mission of the Cornerstone Church in Thomasville. And, and that's what excites us, is it, it lets us be partners with you all. It lets you give us feedback. Not only do you become his accountability partners, but we want to hear from you. I, I told Bethany last night, she's a critical piece of this team, and, and we want to hear from her. When things aren't going well, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from all of you. When things are going well, we'd love to hear from you. I have a couple of texts this morning that talk about people not saying good things about us. Let's say good things about us. Those are the kinds of things we like to hear. But, but for that to happen, it's going to be because of the partnership and education that this takes up. Does that make sense? So that's what we're excited to do. Uh, this partnership will start in the fall. Uh, because he already has an undergraduate degree in Bible, uh, it will be about a two-year program. Typically, that Master of Divinity degree has taken anywhere from three to five years, especially if a person was doing it part-time. By integrating it in the life of a church, we've actually shrunk that time to just over two years. So I think that's going to be good for him and good for his family and good for all of you. That's not to say it will be easy. It will be work. And there will be days when he says, I don't think I'm doing it. And there will be days when you say, oh, yeah, we're all benefiting, benefiting from you doing this. You're going to do this. And you're going to give him the strength and the courage to keep going. At least that's our prayer. Well, as he said, he's also invited me to preach. And I, and I don't know whether it's spring break. You know, is that why I got asked to come do these last two? Um, is it because he got all the good ones and he thought, I really didn't want to do these. Who can I invite in? Um, they're not my favorites. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. I do want to give us some context, though, by going back to the beginning of chapter 5 in Matthew and reading through all nine of these. So if you'd like to read along, this is Matthew 5, beginning with verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And then our verses for this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So like I said, I like the early ones better, right? I like the tranquility ones, the peace ones, the purity ones, the merciful ones, 
the ones where everybody loves everybody and everybody gets along, and where everybody goes to heaven and sees God. Now, those are the ones I like. And, you know, to be honest, when I go someplace like this, I really hope you're going to say nice things about me after I leave and nice things to me while I'm here. Because I really need to be liked. <laughs> Which is the way of most of us, isn't it? We prefer people say nice things about us. We don't like people to smile at us and say nice things to our face and then go say other things about us behind our backs. And so I struggle with these because these are hard ones. I struggle with, with it somehow being good news that, well, they did this to the prophets before you. I, that, why is that supposed to make me feel better, right? Except that there are those words in the prophets, right, um, that have to do with this idea of righteousness. I was helped a little bit by thinking about the fact that this word righteousness can also be translated justice. Sort of think about God's justice in the world. Can bring to mind that language of Micah and Amos, that language of justice rolling down like rivers of water. Or to seek justice and give mercy and walk humbly with your God. And the reality that none of those prophets fared very well among their own people, particularly among the powers of their own time. And yet, I have to confess also that as I've gotten older, I've, I've wondered more and more and more what seeking God's justice looks like, what, what, what persecuted for righteousness' sake really looks like. And what insults that come because of being like Jesus actually mean. Because I, I think I've gotten it wrong more than I've gotten it right. When I was seven years old, my father was a Church of Christ preacher. He, he is a Church of Christ. Well, he's retired now. But when I was seven years old, in the name of at least rightness at the time, righteousness is probably too strong, but in the name of rightness, when the second grade PE class had square dancing, I took a note to school saying that I had a religious objection to that. <laughs> and that was the reaction of my classmates. <laughs> and at the time, you could label that persecuted for righteousness' sake, <laughs> insulted and laughed at. And I did it again in the fourth grade, in the fifth grade. And I've come to think that not square dancing probably isn't an offense worthy of these labels. Don't you imagine? In fact, now to be 63 years old and not have a single dance step in me, <laughs> I mostly resent. <laughs> and so calling square dancing as a seven-year-old being persecuted for righteousness' sake doesn't seem very close to the truth. I grew up in a little town called Roseburg, Oregon, logging community. 
I don't remember in my entire life in Roseburg ever seeing a homeless person. In fact, I didn't see a person of color until I was in junior high. And there was an African-American doctor who was a part of the military who came to work at the VA hospital. And he had two children, both of whom were my age, but they were, went to the other junior high school. And I rarely, if ever, saw them. I remember, I remember the Watts riots on TV. I remember the political hubbub on TV. And I remember the way, how easy it was to cast aside all of those efforts and blame those people for all of their ungodly behavior. And it never dawned on me that maybe the insults I was hurling at them as I watched that on TV or that I was hearing in my all-white community hurled at those people might be me being the persecutor instead of the persecuted. In the Doctor of Ministry course that we now direct, that I now direct, excuse me for getting so low on my microphone, our signature course is a travel course in which our students get on a bus and they travel to Birmingham and Montgomery and Tuskegee and Selma and Jackson and Little Rock and Memphis. And it's not just a civil rights tour. It is about how human beings see all other human beings as image of God. And it takes on a transformative quality that's way beyond the events of the late 60s in our country. Because those events are just microcosm of this much larger question that's not just a part of the South, but it's a part of the world. And that is, how do people in the name of Jesus bear witness to how God sees every living thing? I loved the reading from Psalm 65 this morning. And the God who cares for this planet. Because I think that's part and parcel of who Jesus was and is. And what the kingdom of God is about. But first and foremost, it's the value of every human being on the planet. And somehow I think that has to do with these verses. Because I think what's at stake is the limiting of that view of other human beings. I think one of the most difficult parts of this passage in our time that's different from my growing up days is that there's been a shift. And it's been a shift that makes it easy for us to think we can identify with what it means to be persecuted for righteousness just because we go to church. Because going to church is no longer a given, is it? And, and some of that, I'm, I'm not sure, is so bad. You see, we live for about, 
I guess, what, 1900? No, not 19, about 1,500 years. From the time of Constantine into my lifetime and your lifetime, we lived with the notion that Christianity was a part of the world in privileged status with government. Whether you lived in Europe through the medieval years or you lived through the Protestant Reformation, or you then moved to America so that you could have religious freedom. The whole notion was Christianity is still the privileged religion. And when you came to America, the big question when I was early growing up was not, do you go to church, but which church do you go to? And I still live in Nashville, Tennessee, where that's still a more prominent question than do you go to church. But the reality is Christianity as a place of privilege, communities of people called church as a place of privilege no longer exists in this country. Our children are not automatically going to church because their parents did, and they're certainly not automatically going to the church their parents went to if they go to church at all, right? And so we live in a different time, and I'm kind of glad to be past the apathy stage. I'm glad to be past the time where you go to church because that's just what social community is. And you find the people that look like you and talk like you and act like you and think right like you do and skip square dance class like you do. <laughs> it's bigger than that. It's more intentional than that. To choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this world, in this time, is something that you choose intentionally because you have this sense that there is a meaning to life attached to it that is to be found nowhere else. There is a set of experiences embraced by it that cannot be had otherwise. And you choose it. It's not chosen for you. It's not done accidentally to you. You choose it. Now with that, I think are going to come some consequences. And that's where these verses begin to play out, because then we can begin to ask a different set of questions. And I think you find the answer in that phrase, because of me. What in the world does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are you when people insert, insult you and, and scandalize you because of me? Now, the good news is, Jason is going to take you through the rest of Matthew. And that's where you're going to find the answer to this question. What does because of me look like? Why, in the Lord's Supper each week, do we celebrate Jesus getting killed by other human beings? What is it that Jesus does when he's on this planet as God with us that would lead other human beings to crucify him? So read the story, right? And he does... What does he do? You begin to watch him, and you know, he never sees a human being that's not in the image of God. He never sees a human being that isn't worth being wholly human. So he heals people. He casts out demons so that human beings are fully human again, fully image of God human. But he does it at times that other people think he ought not to be doing it. You know, he interrupts church services and heals people. 
ought not to be doing that. They have come to believe that washing their hands in the right way is about like not square dancing. It's that important that you have to send a note to the teacher saying you can't. And he's not paying attention because he thinks human beings are more important than those kinds of rules. He thinks Gentiles are as valuable as Jews. He doesn't think there's some kind of barrier here that says the educated count and the uneducated don't, the rich count and the the poor don't, the the Jews count and the Gentiles don't, the, the educated Jews count and the uneducated don't. He just sees human beings. And he loves them all the same. And when he loves them all the same, the people who start to be threatened by that say, it's by the prince of demons that you're casting out demons. Or in John's gospel, it's better that one man die than the whole nation be lost. We've got to keep the principalities and powers happy with us, so we've got to get rid of this guy. See, I think if you begin to follow Jesus around, then you begin to make sense of how it is that people loved by God and people loving for the sake of God might not be liked by somebody else. And it doesn't have anything to do with how good the sermon was on Sunday. It has everything to do with how we see other human beings and how we reach out to other human beings and how we say, come and see. No, it's not just come and see our church services. It's come and live with us. Come and see what this life looks like. Come and experience the Holy Spirit of God coming into your life and transforming what you did see in other human beings so that you can see as we see. It's a way of seeing the land itself. The thing I love about Jesus is, on the one hand, it doesn't look like he he cares that much about the land because he doesn't own a single piece of it. But on the other hand, even the wind and the waves get along with him. Because he has a relationship with the land. And with the climate. And we could say, ah, yeah, but he's God. That's cheating. Well, yeah, it's God. And after all, who who created the winds and the waves? And who invited us to be co-creators with him on this planet? But those he created in God's image. And so here we are. And I dare say that if you start loving people as Jesus loved people, and if you start caring for the land as Jesus cared for the land, and if you start walking out this life in these kinds of ways, there are going to be repercussions. Yes, as we prayed and said earlier, victory over Satan and death has been won. But it's not to say they're still not lashing about in one last gasp effort to convince us that something other than our salvation in Jesus really might be the meaning of life. 
and they'll do what they can. And then we can talk about these verses in more helpful ways. Then it will be something other than, do you like me? Please like me. It will be something more than, please come to our church. You'll like us. We're great people. We have great programs. You'll like our worship. It'll be about the kingdom of God reigning in your lives in this community in such a way that it matters. And when it matters, you will know. Let's pray. Oh, loving God, you who exist as Father, Son, and Spirit, you who chose to make your home in our midst by becoming flesh and dwelling among us and dying for us and rising and ascending so that your Holy Spirit might be poured out on us. We give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have called us and chosen us and named us as your sons and your daughters and that you've invited us into this complex world of ours where your name gets used in all kinds of ways and where sometimes the silliest of things get held up as though they make a difference. Instead of your love being evidenced through us by your presence in us, instead of us being in all of those places that others are afraid to go, instead of us seeing with your eyes, and so, Father, for your forgiveness and your long-suffering with your children, we give you thanks. Even as we confess today that our longing is to be more like your Son, to live into that identity that you have given us as your sons and daughters, to live into the identity you have called us to as Holy Spirit-filled, embodied Christ for our world and our time. And so, Father, we pray that you will make it so in the Thomasville community, that your children will walk out of here as the embodied Christ this week, and that they will fill this space with justice, with mercy, and with lives that are evidence of your presence everywhere they go. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So here's the other thing I know this morning. That is, on any given Sunday, somebody just barely decided to come today. Because there's always other options. And maybe the songs that have been sung and the prayers that have been offered and the scriptures that have been read and the words that have been spoken have touched something in you that calls you to share that with this church. And so as we stand and sing this song, we invite you to make that known by coming forward. Let's stand. <laughs>